Hello, and welcome back to Literally Literary. If this is your first time joining us, be sure to check out our previous episodes. This episode, we will continue our discussion on We Cast a Shadow by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Last episode, we discussed parts three and four of the novel, focusing on the character developments and events. This episode, we are joined by Maurice Carlos Ruffin himself. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hi. Hi, Mr. Ruffin. It's a great honor, and we really appreciate this opportunity to uh, talk to you about your work. I'd be happy to also, you know, uh, point readers to uh, and listeners to like a particular website where you would like them to purchase it, uh, or a particular bookstore or what have you. Oh yeah, that, that's wonderful. So, you know, New Orleans is unusual in that we are a small town. I guess kind of like El Paso a little bit, um, mm. but we we have um, we have a lot of bookstores. And so I could probably name a bunch of them, and so I'll just rattle off a few. Um, okay. Definitely Garden District Books and Octavia Books, as well as the Community Book Center, and uh, Blue Cypress Books, and Tubby and Coos. And uh, I guess I'll stop there for now, so I can keep going all day. But um, you know, <laughs> however you want to get it. Also, there's an audio version available with a great narration by an actor named Dion Graham, who was on the TV show uh, The First Forty Eight. Oh, awesome. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, like I was saying, you know, um, it, it really is an honor to uh, get to talk to you. Uh, this is a podcast that started, you know, just about nine months ago. And, you know, you're the, the fifth offer that we've had the privilege of uh, talking to one-on-one. Um, and uh, so our, our first question in that regard that I'll let Vanessa ask relates to actually how we, f- we found out about you and we discovered you as a writer. Uh, so I'll let her ask that. Okay, so um, Richie and I were both at your panel at AWP with Kali, um, and it was about your debut year. And so I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about your journey in this first year of having your book out. Yeah, um, so, you know, writing can be a, a very solitary um, lifestyle because you need to take time to be by yourself and collect your thoughts and actually sit down and physically write. and you know, you do all that, and then you hope you can find um, a good agent and a good publisher. And, you know, sometimes you don't, and um, sometimes you do. I was fortunate to find a great agent and a great publisher. And uh, my year started off with my book coming out in January of 2019. And, you know, frankly, I can say it unabashedly, it was a dream come true. Um, I had a great book tour, which started here in my hometown, New Orleans. Um, with pretty much everybody I love in the world in one room at one time. I think we had about 300 attendees or, you know, maybe more than that. And, um, you know, from there, just went out, went out across the South. I, I visited uh, Maine. I went to Portland, Oregon. And it was just so nice to have actually finished the book, uh, had to get a good reception, and to meet people who had already even read it, um, who were buying copies for their friends. And it, it's just, it was the best possible situation. And, and to have um, you know, good reviews appear in New York Times, NPR, uh, the Boston Globe, to have uh, people interview me, you know, for various programs, and uh, to talk at universities. I went to Susquehanna in Pennsylvania and many other places. Um, you know, households, uh, schools, um, you know, high schools, mansions. Um, I was a, a graduation speaker for two different high schools. So it was just a great experience. And I highly recommend it for anybody that you just, uh, you know, you write your book, you get it out there and you just enjoy it as much as possible because it doesn't get any better than that. 
Yeah, Maurice, and, and uh, I myself wasn't there, um, but as Vanessa said, you know, they both were, and uh, I think it's quite serendipitous that they were able to uh, attend your panel uh, with Gavi as well. Uh, and I wish, you know, I, I was there, you know, but um, I, I heard a lot about you from that. Um, and that's why, you know, we decided on your book. Uh, we find it, you know, very culturally relevant. And that's more or less what the mission of our podcast is. You know, we really want to disrupt uh, the canon, uh, quote unquote. Um, but um, our second question takes us to the, the text itself. Um, you know, uh, in uh, We Cast a Shadow, um, Vanessa has a question for you regarding um, uh, the relationship between our narrator, uh, who goes unnamed, and uh, his, uh, his wife. So I'll let her ask that. So my next question is, what made you decide to have Penny, being a white woman, framed as the woke ally while, and an activist, while the narrator is black and he's more su submissive to society and what people want? That's a wonderful question. And, um, you know, almost nobody has asked me that question yet. And I've had a lot of interviews. And I, 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 I thought about this, and I, I had to look back at my own process. Um, I haven't really said this to very many people, but in the earliest drafts, uh, Penny was black and she had a different mm. name. And obviously that made for a different relationship. And, um, you know, one of those things about writing is that it's kind of like people that say they want to get rich and be famous. Nobody becomes rich and famous by just wishing it. You have to actually take actions. And in writing the book, I wanted to write a book that was going to be full of you know, great storytelling, but also like full of conflict and drama as much as possible without being ridiculous about it. Um, even though I have a high threshold for ridiculousness. I love you know, I watching soap operas. Um, I've watched some telenovelas, you know. And, and so it's kind of like, well, what can you do to make this more energetic? And I recall very clearly sitting, um, you know, one day and saying, well, you know, what if his wife was white? What would that do to, to, to the narrative? Because, you know, I'm married, my wife is black. I have never been married to a white person, but I just thought about it. And I have many friends who are in interracial relationships. And um, I just recognized that that was a great sort of uh, untapped resource for um, interesting conflict. And of course, to make her the one who was the activist and make him the one who was, like you said, somewhat docile in comparison, mm -hmm. made for a sort of you know, non-stereotypical couple that was just a lot of fun to write. Hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that. You know, that, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, definitely, like you said, you know, it really drove that conflict. And, um, you know, we, we had a lot to say about that, you know, in our discussion of the book. Um, uh, s speaking of kind of like um, the, the diametric, diametric oppositions in your novel, uh, Vanessa had a question about uh, father, the, the, you know, the father, the narrator, and protagonist, and son. Um, so what was that question, Vanessa? So in their character development, they kind of seem to end up being complete opposites. And I was wondering if you felt that um, the father and Nigel are kind of representative of our society today, possibly? Oh, yeah, I think that's correct. I think that um, you have to make a choice in life. And I, I think that one of the things we deal with is how to be courageous. Because often if you're courageous, 
you're going to have to give something up. You know, if society is, is trying to move you in one direction, um, um, if you sort of go with the flow, like the narrator does, you know, maybe you can have a smooth ride. Um, but if you decide to stand up for yourself and to embrace your identity and, and, and love yourself as you are, um, that's going to cause you to have to sort of, you know, leave your hometown and go elsewhere and, and maybe, you know, start something different in your life. I think mm -hmm. that what we see today in America, but really all around the world, I mean, I, I think I heard somewhere that 2019 was the year where there were the most um, protests internationally maybe in history. I mean, it was something like 50 different countries having protests almost simultaneously. And um, I think that, you know, people who are willing to stand up for what they believe is right, which is, you know, for the human rights, um, mm -hmm. is always a good thing. And I think that Nigel is one of the characters who stands for that. And it's why he's such a exceptional young man who I really enjoyed observing in the book. Yeah, he was definitely one of my favorite characters. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we've talked about other similar characters who are like that. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Hate You Give, you know, by Angie Thomas by chance, but, you know, yes, uh, yeah, her character star, you know, is very reminiscent of Nigel in that regard. Um, but, you know, um, this kind of leads us to uh, the next question from Vanessa regarding um, what makes your novel very unique is. It, it's it's setting right and it's set in the futuristic dystopian science fiction world uh so because of that premise uh vanessa had a question about that okay so given the problematic state of the american race relations what would you hope readers take with them by reading a story about a character who feels that to protect his son he must strip him of his black identity yeah you know, I, I don't want to beat my narrator up too much because I think <laughs> I think a part of him is that he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that right. he's sort of fitting into this American narrative of like this the idea that you know we are this melting pot and America is one of the few countries historically that wasn't about like you know blood and soil or about you know being tied to this nation because of some almost genetic thing. Um, you know, America is an idea, and the idea is if you come here, you accept us, you're an American, and that's all there is to it. I think he, he takes it a bit too far, and, uh, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, all right, you know, in, in the olden days in Hollywood, and even today, people change their names to sound more, quote-unquote, American. People change right. their appearances to seem more American. But I think that I wrote the books that people would question, why would anybody think this is necessary? Why would you have to give up so much of yourself in order to fit into this place? That is supposedly such a such a dream and such a wonderful place to be. Um, you know, we call ourselves accepting. We say that we are the home of the free, you know, land of the brave. We say that we'll take, you know, your sick and tired huddled masses. Well, if that's all true, you know, then why do we have babies in cages? You know, why do we have people being killed by not only like police, but like just guys in neighborhoods, you know, in pickup trucks, tracking down people jogging? And you know, why do we have women being abused by you know news anchors and 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 you know other people in power and that kind of thing? So. The book is really, I would almost say it's Socratic. You know, it, it, it's satirical in that it's sort of putting out some things that almost sound ridiculous. But when you interrogate it, you kind of go, well, that's actually, that's actually really happening for the most part. And why are we allowing mm -hmm. that as a society? So that's my mindset when it comes to that idea. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting, Maurice. Um, you know, what you mentioned um, also how people 
you know, Hollywood in Hollywood, you know, they change their names or in the music industry to appear more mainstream, right? And I couldn't help but think of, you know, uh, Richard Valenzuela, better known as Richie Valens, you know, who died so tragically in that yeah. um, plane crash. Um, so young, you know. Um, but yeah, so true. Um, Vanessa also had a question uh, regarding uh, the frame narrative. And, you know, if we have time, that kind of leads us to a, another question I was thinking of in terms of uh, your um, the text that you allude to, but uh, it's a question about the ending. So spoiler alert for readers, but, you know, um, what, what was the question, Vanessa? Um, so what was your thought process behind ending with the frame narrative of addressing Nigel in hopes of mending their relationship? Yeah, well, you know, I think that is, um, you know, as an author, one of the things we do is we get to think about form and structure and how to best tell a story. And, um, you know, this book and its various drafts had different forms and structures. But the way it turned out is that there's a sort of framing narrative. Um, it's somewhat epistolary, like a letter being written towards somebody. And then mm -hmm. the idea, well, who do you choose is being written towards? And I'm certain that a big part of that influence comes from ta Coates with Between the World and Me. Um, you know, I read that book like everybody else did, like most people did back in 2014 or 15. And, you know, the real power in what he does there it isn't just his interrogation of racism, but it's the fact that he's literally talking to his own son in that book. And, you know, for me, it was unforgettable. And, uh, and so I, I think that, you know, you know my narrator, um, you know, when I was in grad school, one of my, one of my great friends, um, a writer named Che Yoon, um, mentioned to me, she said, you know, but I would read her stories and I would go, why is it your stories feel so confessional and so honest and so sort of clear? And she said, well, I, I treat my narrators as if they are doing a confession or as if they're on trial on the stand and they're sort of explaining themselves to the jury. And so I think I had those ideas in, in the back of my mind so that you know, our narrator who is aware that he's done some things that no one ever do is trying to explain himself, you know, to Nigel first and foremost, but to anybody who would listen. And that's why I think in the end, he's, he's sort of saying, look, you know, it's not Nigel, you know, maybe, maybe it's my family. If it's not my family, maybe it's somebody even beyond that, people out in the world who can hear my voice. Please, you know, hear what I'm trying to tell you about my situation so you can understand where I came from in my actions. Hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in that you know, closing of the frame narrative, um, you know, the, the narrator, you know, breaks that fourth wall. And, um, you know, Richie and I discuss extensively because it's one of our favorite novels. You know, you have that epigraph of Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, we picked up on a lot of allusions to Invisible Man. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we felt that, you know, you, um, you were extending that conversation, you know, that Ralph Allison started in that great novel uh, of, you know, what it means to be American, what, what the American dream is all about in a, in a world that, you know, in an America that is clearly still to this day, you know, obviously very racist um, in its institutions and in its, in its practices, et cetera. Um, and so I, I, I was just wondering about, you know, um, those illusions, and I also picked up on on those illusions illusions to get out. I don't know if they were intentional or if that was just me, uh, but I think just as a dystopian novel, and and similarly, you know, with Get Out being a kind of dystopian film, you know, um, 
I kind of see that, you know, you're, there's this um, science fiction element to it, right? Just like in Get Out. And there's also the, the protest novel in Invisible Man, you know, that you're kind of putting together. And I just found that very fascinating. Yeah. I, well, you know, um, I remember there's a friend of mine, um, a reporter named Jarvis DeBerry. He's also an opinion columnist. And he was interviewing me for this book you know, over a year ago. And he asked me about a book called Black No More by George Shiler, which, you know, the concept is um, basically a black man tries to turn himself white. This is, this is a book from like 1934, like from way, way, way back. And I had heard of it, but I hadn't read it yet. And when he, when he asked that question, I recognized that there's sort of two kinds of influences um, that I think definitely applies to, to black writers, maybe all writers. There's the influences that you're aware of, and there's the influences that you're not aware of. So Invisible Man, you know, I'm paying homage to that in this book and several other books. You know, I read them when I was younger. I loved them. They influenced me. They inspired me. And, and my book stands on the shoulders of those you know, great, colossal earlier books. Then there are things that I didn't read. I didn't see the film. I didn't hear the song. And I don't know, like, how some of these ideas got into my mind. Uh, for example, you know, Get Out came out in 2017. My book was written primarily between 2012, 2016 with some edits around 2017, but it was almost mm. by that point. So mm. the way I think of it is that, you know, and maybe this is a little spiritual, but I think it's true that we are sort of joined um, with our hands um, to our ancestors. And so there are things that, you know, my great grandparents understood that somehow I understand, even though I haven't seen with my own eyes. And I think that there are people in places that I haven't met who know things that I somehow can know like they know it. And, um, you know, art is often about connections to other artists that, you know, no art comes from itself. It always comes from its community and from its experiences. So, you know, Jordan Peele, um, you know, Sorry to Bother You uh, is another great film that came out after the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, all these things, we're working in the, same, in the same sort of space. And I think the reason why is because, you know, all of us as creators are intellectuals who live in the world today. We've read some of the same books and seen some of the same earlier films. And so we just, you know, we're just sort of doing our thing and doing it with our own style and voices. Mm. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, uh, Maurice. You know, uh, I think uh, there's a lot of truth in, you know, how our subconscious works, you know, that we can't access in many ways. And that, you know, in our dreams, for instance, inspires us, you know. Uh, but um, that, that, that was it, you know, uh, for me. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you, Richie, wanted to chime in with something. These are great questions, by the way. Thank you all so much for this. Yeah, this has been really, really cool. Just uh, sitting back and listening. I think, if, if anything, um, I'm interested in like the, the community aspect you kind of you had kind of mentioned earlier, and I remember you bringing it up as well um, in your discussion in, in the panel at AWP on the first year debut first year. But you had mentioned your your debut night and um, the way you know it was it, it was in a place filled with all sorts of people, all the people you love. Um, I remember you mentioning in the, in the panel um, something about collaborating with with uh, with a local restaurant and, and some people, the community, like and, and involve the community. Can you uh, maybe share that, elucidate a little bit more on that to our listeners? And then, like, I think maybe the significance of incorporating your community in what you do. Yeah, I think that um, I think that all of us, but writers especially, have a duty that we, that we owe to our communities. Um, 
you know, I've dreamed of being a writer my entire life. And I know that I was inspired by the adults in my life. You know, most of them were not writers. Almost none of them were writers. And also the writers I didn't personally know. But I know that people have a hard time being what they cannot see. And so I knew that when I wrote my book, you know, I'm not concerned about being rich or famous or, you know, winning all these prizes. But I do think that one of my missions is to make sure that I'm at least um, well-known enough so that, you know, other writers in my community, especially children, but people who, you know, are, you know, adults also can see what I'm doing and create their own works of art, of writing, you know, music, so forth and so on. And you know, New Orleans is particularly good at community. Right now, obviously, we're locked down, like most places in the world. But, um, you know, I know that I couldn't have written this book without, you know, so many people. I mean, it's like the end of a film with like hundreds of names in the credits just scrolling down. I could go on for like, you know, 40 minutes just naming names and people that helped me along the way. And, um, you know, there's several um, restaurants in New Orleans that have supported me. Um, in fact, I think this month I was going to go to one of these places and, and do um, not even like really a reading, but just like go there and like sit at a table with my books stacked up and they were going to give out 100 free books, you know, free, free my book to just community members walk in the door, you know, young people, students, you know, the elderly. And that's just kind of how we are in this community. And, and that feeling of giving is something that I want to spread as much as possible. And that's why I've always been a big proponent of volunteering, um, you know, at schools, elementaries, even colleges. And uh, just making sure that we all understand that, um, you know, because writing is about, is about empathy and about bringing us together, it should be open and available as much as possible to, to anybody who, um, who, who, who is there to, to accept it. Yeah, right on. Love that. I'm, I'm right with you there. Thank you. And, and I want to say I'm glad that, that you all were able to make it to the um, AWP event. You know, that was a strange time in that um, the world was just getting ready to shut down. Nobody really knew at that time. And for me, it was one of the great sort of last moments before this all kind of kind of got weird. Uh, you know, Kali is one of the great um, public speakers and a great panel mate. So we just had such a great time. Being, like just the energy that she brings to it, it just felt like I was, um, you know, a duck in water to use that, that old phrase. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm glad that you guys were able to make it. I know that initially the panel was supposed to be involve more people but in a way i i think it ended up working out perfectly that was just the two of you because i think you were able to kind of go a little more in depth into your stories oh totally and, and uh, as they say in new york quiet is kept but for a time that panel was canceled like i was pretty sure it just wasn't going to happen and um and i you know somebody was like let's just go ahead and get it done it's like yes indeed i'm here let's get it done and i think that the energy in that room was because people recognized how precious it was and you know, frankly, for many of us, it'll be the last group event that you get to experience for a year or even two years or you know, even longer than that. So I really enjoyed it. And it was you know, great to meet you all who were present there. Yeah, that's that's what I was I was realizing, Maurice, uh, you know, is that 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 might just be the biggest event that, you know, this this community had, you know, the writing community had. And like you said, for, for a while. Uh, Vanessa, since you went, I don't know if you had if you wanted to chime in with anything. Um, no, I really did like when you mentioned um, there was a point in the panel that you mentioned you are a writer first and foremost, and you said it a couple of times, and that was one of my favorite moments. I think during that panel. Oh wow, cool! <laughs> Thank you for that. Because it's hard, you know. I think sometimes, um, sometimes uh, it's hard for writers to embrace their identity as writers. I mean. I didn't call myself a writer. 
I mean, I'm in my 40s now. I didn't call myself a writer until I was like in my 30s. And I think it's because we're often encouraged to take, you know, maybe easier paths. Like if you tell somebody, I'm going to school to be an accountant, they just kind of like nod their head. You know, they can accept that. They understand, all right, accountants can go to school, make money, yada, yada, yada. But as somebody in, in this, you know, this artistic field, people, people don't really like necessarily go say go for it. Like maybe your closest friends do, but strangers don't quite get it. And without that additional support from the community, it can be hard. And, you know, I will say one more thing about, about New Orleans is that, you know, we're not the biggest literary town in the world. We, we have a lot of bookstores and, a, you know, a good community of readers and, and writers who live there now. But, you know, it's not quite like, say, New York, for example, or maybe Seattle. But I will say that once my book was released, I was amazed at the sort of lay people who are not, quote unquote, book people, people who, you know, work in gas stations, you know, waiters in restaurants, who just like would show up to events that I was doing in town. And they would go, look, I haven't read books since I was in high school, but I want to get this book so I could have it and like give it to my to my kid. And I think that, you know, as writers, you need that. You need people who look at you and go, you know, you're a part of what makes us who we are. Every community has, you know, teachers and doctors and, and ministers and nurses. Um, and writers are a part of the community. Writers are people who help us see ourselves. And so I would just say that I think of myself as a writer first and foremost, because I've been a lot of things in my life. I have been, you know, I am a lawyer. Um, I have been a restaurant owner, you know, I've been a bag boy, I've been a camp counselor, I can go on and on and on. But, you know, once you find that purpose as a writer, and you really embrace it, and you set some goals for yourself, um, it's going to be hard for life, which can be very difficult to move you off of those goals, you'll stick with it. And, you know, the writers who I admire so much, you mentioned, for example, earlier, Angie Thomas, I mean, I read her book, and I was blown away at the complexity and and the pace at which she tells this story, you know, I'm inspired by that. And so um, I feel very fortunate to be somebody who's a part of this sort of, this sort of, um, this literary life that uh, so many great people are a part of, including you all. Thank you, Maurice. Um, you know, New Orleans does sound like a lovely community. We, we want to thank you again uh, for this, this uh, wonderful opportunity. Uh, and we want to wish you and your family um, health and prosperity. Uh, during these tough times. We, we, we really loved your work. Uh, we, we couldn't really stop talking about it, as you can tell by our uh, extra long podcast episodes. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess if, if Richie and Melissa, if you had any, any, closing, um, any closing words uh, before we um, finish? Uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you once again. Um, I, I'm looking forward to that that uh, next book then. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> well, y'all keep it up. I look forward to more of your episodes. Thank you, Maurice. Uh, we really appreciate the support. You know, um, we're just three uh, people, and uh, you know, we we never dreamed it would it would become some this kind of privilege. I feel like we're on the radio right now. So if you all want to use my voice for this, you can do it. Um, I'll just say, literally, literary podcast, the greatest book podcast in the world. Oh, that's oh my awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's a fantastic podcast. But uh, like I said, keep it up. And if you need me in the future, you know where to find me. And um, keep doing great things, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode discussing We Cast a Shadow with Maurice Carlos Ruffin. And if you haven't read it, we hope you, we inspire you to pick up a copy. 
Literally Literary is brought to you by the Mellon Foundation through the Humanities Collaborative at EPCC and UTEP. Follow us on Instagram at literallyliterary.ep and on Twitter at literallylitep.